Poetry Dose. Welcome. This is episode four of Poetry Dose. And today we have poems from Gary J. Whitehead. The first poem is one of his own, and it's entitled Gray Water. Gray water of the wayward and third world, the weary traveler out of underwear, the off-grid anchorite I was standing naked by a basin up to my elbows in it. Gray water of the great unwashed, bare hands wringing, cloths bleeding into buckets like gutted birds. The Gambias, the Ganges' turbid water slopping out of pails. My grandmother's when she laundered by hand in spite of a machine. Gray water of every washerwoman's walk to and from a well. Middle fork of the South Platte, the Oto woman on her knees leaking a white soldier's semen. Her gray water, her red hands squeezing, and on the far bank, the whole scene curved in the brown eye of a bison chewing its cud. Blood of a butchered fawn in a hunter's backwoods tub. The Yellowstones, the Gila's boiled water gone gray with pioneer grime. The Choctaws, the Chickasaw's gray water. The Mississippi's full of silt in which the Ojibwe's bathed their blankets and Twain's made rinsed ink from his stained linens. The Niger's, the Mekong's, the Volga's dreggy water pulled clean down highlands and glacial plateaus to lave lace, jacquard, and cara, to scrub filth out of shawl and yem. Gray water of every river lake and stream, the sinners' tributaries, the masturbators, no agitators or paddles. How easy to straddle a pail, decoct a murder from a shirt, to twist from sheets the shame of menstruation, the wetted bed, our shit and cum, to mundify, to deterge. From the gray water of our fey humanity, from the dust, smut, and crud, we pull dripping the peace goods of our deeds. A little elbow grease, a little soap, a little water cleans us. So about 12 years ago, I was awarded the Marjorie Davis Boyden Wilderness Writing Residency by Penn Northwest, uh, which featured seven months of living off the grid in a remote cabin in the wilderness of southwestern Oregon. With no electricity, I often wash my clothes by hand. Anyone who's ever washed clothes by hand has experienced gray water, a term I think I first encountered in a book by John Daniel called Rogue River Journal, in which John writes about his own year spent at the same cabin five years before me, and washing his clothes by hand while there. So my poem grew out of that image of hand washing, but it also grew out of the assonance and alliteration of the first line. 
gray water of the wayward and third world, a phrase I kept repeating in my head for many days before I actually put pencil to paper. Like many of my poems, this one came in tercets or three-line stanzas, a structure that for some reason often feels right to me. I had no idea where it was going at the start, but no pun intended, I went with the flow, building mostly from anaphoric repetition. And the poem took me around the world to Africa, India, Southeast Asia, Europe, as well as through young America and the spoils of colonialism and manifest destiny. And the imagery grew increasingly dark and violent as I considered what it is we humans wash when we launder our clothes. As with many of my poems, in this one I often built by linking sound to sound. I think of lines like, From the dust, smut, and crud we pull dripping the peace goods of our deeds. In the ending, I twisted from the word deeds into a paraphrase of Lady Macbeth's line, A little water clears us of this deed. It seemed to work so well with the idea that we think we can wash away the terrible things we do. And the tone in the end, especially with the phrase elbow grease, is ironic, of course. As Shakespeare well knew, a little water doesn't really clear us of our deeds. All right. And now for what we call our school dose segment, where we ask, today's guest, Gary Whitehead, to pick a poem that stuck with him from an early age. And Gary brought us this poem by William Blake named The Tiger. Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night. What immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry. In what distant deeps or skies burnt the fire of thine eyes? On what wings dare he aspire? What the hand dare seize the fire? And what shoulder and what art could twist the sinews of thy heart? And when thy heart began to beat, what dread hand and what dread feet? What the hammer, what the chain? In what furnace was thy brain? What the anvil, what dread grasp Dare its deadly terrors clasp? When the stars threw down their spears And watered heaven with their tears, Did he smile his work to see? Did he who made the lamb make thee? Tiger, tiger, burning bright In the forests of the night What immortal hand or eye Dare frame thy fearful symmetry? I remember reading Blake's The Tiger in an English class in high school. It was probably ninth grade. It's one of the few poems I remember reading at that age. I think we read mostly novels and short stories back then. I know I was intrigued by the weird spelling of tiger with a Y, 
right off the bat, and that I was instantly beguiled by the images and trochaic rhythm, the strange syntax and archaic diction, the exact and slant rhymes of its couplet quatrains. The first stanza was easy enough, though why that tiger would be burning bright and in a forest and not a jungle was something of a mystery. The question of the first stanza, I understood right away too. After nine years of Catholic school, I'd probably wondered myself how or what God had created animals. As the questions continued in stanza two, I'm sure I became increasingly more puzzled. Why would the eyes of a tiger burn in deeps or skies? Maybe this wasn't your typical jungle cat? The speaker also begins to question the creator himself, his aspirations, daring, and artistry in creating the tiger. What's more, in stanza three, it becomes increasingly unclear whether or not the descriptions are of the tiger or God. Are the dread hand and dread feet gods or the tigers? Do tigers even have feet? They have paws, right? This ambiguity continues into the fourth stanza, as the creator is depicted as a kind of terrible blacksmith forging his terrible beast. And again, the two characters merge. What dread grasp dare its deadly terrors clasp? The referent of the it there is unclear. The it could refer to the tiger or to God, and both seem to work. The penultimate stanza continues the cosmic setting, the stars and heaven, and the questioning of whether or not this creator smiled his work to see is unsettling, as is the question, did he who make the lamb make thee? The lamb is both antithetical to the tiger in its meekness, and it suggests Jesus Christ, especially in its capitalization. So with the final stanza, a repetition of the first, the poem comes full circle and leaves the reader wondering about God and why he would create a killing beast at his celestial forge. It's a question, of course, I still ponder today. Okay, thank you to Gary J. Whitehead for participating. Some of Gary's poems recently appeared or are forthcoming in The New Yorker, Plowshares, Epoch, and The Massachusetts Review. His third book of poetry called A Glossary of Chickens was chosen by Paul Muldoon for the Princeton series of contemporary poets and published in 2013 by Princeton University's Press. His work has been featured on Garrison Keillor's NPR program, The Writer's Almanac, and on Poetry Daily, Verse Daily, and The Guardian's Poem of the Week. Whitehead has been the recipient of the Annie Holly Poetry Prize, given by the Massachusetts Review, a New York Foundation for the Arts, Fellowship in Poetry, and the Princeton University Distinguished Secondary School Teaching Award. Right on, Gary. A featured poet at the Geraldine R. Dodge Poetry Festival and the Princeton Poetry Festival. He teaches English at Tenafly High School 
from New Jersey, and he lives in the Hudson Valley of New York. You can find more information about Gary and links to his work at his website, GaryJWhitehead.com. We've got a lot more episodes on the way. Uh, you can reach out to us at PoetryDose at gmail.com. We'll see you next time.